This is the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and my colleague, Mary Gamba. That's why it's called the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and Mary Gamba. Mary, how are you doing on this beautiful summer day that we're taping this, which will air later? I know. I'm doing great. I wish it could be summer year-round. Yeah, but we're not talking 100 with humidity. That's at 200. I'll take it. What it actually mean is like 80, 82, breezy. That's the summer you want, right? That would be really nice. Yeah, where do they have that summer? South Carolina. Oh, let's go. No, Mary, stop with the South Carolina talk. You're not going anywhere anytime soon. So this is the Leadership Hour. You're listening to us either on our... They can check us out on where? Because they yeah. can also listen to us every Sunday, every Sunday at AM 970, the greatest radio station in and around the New York City area at 2 p.m., the Leadership Hour. Yes, every Sunday. Or where else? Absolutely. They can also find us. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well as on Google Play. Also, they can follow us on Facebook, Steve Adubato, Ph.D., that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, and on Twitter at Steve Adubato. And also they can get free tips, tools, columns at our website, stand-deliver.com. So definitely check that out as well. Good stuff. And by the way, I also want to thank all the folks who make the Leadership Hour possible, particularly the folks at New Jersey Resources down there and also our clients, those who we serve every day in our leadership and communication company. We do executive coaching, leadership development, seminars, et cetera, for RWJ Barnabas Health, Hackensack Meridian Health, Gibbons, which is a great law firm, New Jersey Sharing Network, MD Advantage, St. Joseph's Health, New Jersey Resources, Valley National Cone Resnick, Prager Mattis, and also the Operating Engineers Local 825. And speaking of branding, Valley National Bank is now just Valley. Oh, I forgot. That you know is what? the newest and greatest. They went from Valley National Bank to just Valley. They're doing a big rebrand. So that's one of the things we talk about here on the Leadership Hour. Yeah, by the way, if you want to check out past Leadership Hour guests, the CEO of Valley, Ira Robbins, who is not just a great leader, but someone who I've coached over the years and worked with. He is one of those leaders that's always open to new ideas, approaches. He's not defensive about feedback. He just wants to get better every day. That's the kind of leader we're looking for. We love those kinds of leaders. And he was a really great guest on the show. And thank you again, Ira, for taking that time. It's a great interview. And again, you can check that out on our website, stand-deliver, or check it out on Apple Podcast and Google Play. Don't forget that the head of HR over at... Valley joined us as well. Yvonne was with us as well, right? That's right. Correct. Yeah. Let's check this out. I know that Kenny Danico, the great Kenny Danico, who's jersey number three, hangs in the rafters at the Prudential Center after he played many years with the Devils. They won two. Two Stanley Cups? I thought three, but who's counting? Maybe I'm forward uh, two, thinking. Three. We'll find out yeah, from Kenny. Kenny may be joining us. Hopefully, Kenny is joining us for this broadcast. If it's not, it'll be the next one. But what I want to do is set up one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever done. It was done on the PBS side. We were doing this at the Tisch WNET studio at Lincoln Center in New York City. And I got to tell you, you're in this television business and you, you meet interesting people. Most importantly, you watch people over the years. And Alan Alda, to say he's an icon in our industry is ridiculous. He's so much more than that. He's brilliant. He's a star. He's compassionate. He's caring. He, he's just a really, really not to mention a great actor and director, but he's dedicated a lot of his life to communication. After he was on MASH for many, many years, he was on MASH from 1972 to 1983. He was Hawkeye Pierce, Hawkeye Pierce, the star of that show with a great ensemble cast. He also did a show on public broadcasting on PBS called 
Scientific American Frontiers for several years. And in the context of doing that show, Mary, he said, I'm interviewing all of these scientists, and half the time I don't know what they're talking about. So like us at Stand and Deliver, the Mary Gamba and Steve Adubato company, he became fascinated on how people communicate or don't communicate effectively. And so what you're about to listen to is a clip from this in-depth one-on-one interview I did. By the way, if you want to see it on the visual side, yes. check out our website at... That one is steveadubato.org. So that's Steve, A-D-U-B-A-T-O.org. And you could just put that in the search engine and it'll pop right up. It's a great interview. Listening to it is going to be terrific. Brian Brodeur, our great team over here at East Main Media, this lasts about three or four minutes? Yeah, it's about four minutes. This is Alan Alda. I'm Steve Adubato. You're going to be listening to... The great Alan Alda talking about why he has become fascinated with communication and why he is, in fact, connected and created an institute or all around scientific communication up at Stony Brook University. Yep. He is a co-founder of the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. I like how we got the word science in there for scientists. So. I'm going to create the Steve Adubato Center for Leadership Science. I don't know. I had to come up with a cool name by the end of the day. This is... Steve Adubato, that's Mary Gamba. This is Brian. But more importantly, right now, listen to the great Alan Alda. Why can't we train scientists while we're training them to be scientists, train them to be good communicators? Everything would benefit. Science would benefit. Funding would get better. Congress would suddenly understand what scientists want the money for. And other scientists would understand scientists who are not exactly in their field. Everything would improve. And we'd have the best thing was people like me, the ordinary people who are not trained in science. We'd have this wonderful chance to understand the beauties of nature in a way that only scientists understand it. Why can't he be president? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I am honored. We at Public Broadcasting, uh, at One on One, at the Tisch WNET studio, are honored to have Alan Alda, actor as if I need to say that, writer, uh, professor, co-founder of the Alan Alda Center for Communication or Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. That's very nice of you. Um, can, can we jump right into this? By the yeah. way, if you want to check out, uh, you may not know, but Alan Alda did a little, did a little work in TV. Um, <laughs> MASH 72 to 83, uh, Hawkeye Pierce. Um, check out that. Check out so many other things that he has done. Uh, scientific. Hey, by the way, PBS. You've been tied to our PBS family That's for many right. years. Yeah, we did uh, Scientific American Frontiers for eleven years on PBS. Right. And by the way, the other thing I need to say is your wonderful wife, Arlene, was with us right here, sitting in that seat, uh, talking about the Bronx and all the work that she's done uh, in, in that area. A um, wonderful book, Just Kids from the Bronx. Just Kids from the Bronx. We should get two for one out of this. <laughs> Listen, um, let's jump into this. Your communication, your focus, healthy obsession with communication, and the fact that uh, in your book, the introduction is the, one of the worst things about communication, the quote is the illusion that it actually took place. Right, because or it makes sense to you. You think you communicated everything you needed to say in the most exact, proper way, accurate, but the other person doesn't know what you're talking about sometimes, a good deal of the time. Sure. When did you realize this was a real problem, communicating? You know... I started to realize, I had a vague awareness that people weren't understanding me a good deal of the time, but it really hit me strongly one time 
when I was in a dentist's office and he was going to do an operation to take, because I had a bad front tooth. He was going to take out the, the root or side on it, some operation with my front tooth. He said, I got this procedure I invented where I pull a flap of your gum over your I said, oh, you, have you done this much? <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. Then he's got, right before the operation starts, he's got the scalpel right in front of my face. And he says, now there'll be some tethering. 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 I remember reading this book. He used that word? He said tethering. What I does said, that mean? I said, that's what I thought. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, what, 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 tethering. He said, tethering. He started screaming at me, barking at me. He never told me what tethering meant. I didn't know what it meant. What it turned out was that little piece of tissue above your lip, inside your mouth, you, you see right. your feeling for it, that, that helps you smile, for one thing. I, I, I left that office unable to smile properly. I couldn't get... I was like, I had my, my upper lip was like a flap, <laughs> like, a, like an old was scalloped li- curtain. Sorry for interrupting while we're talking about communication. Yeah. Was that your aha moment? It, it came pretty close. It stands out in my memory as a, a significant time when somebody was telling me something that he understood technically, perfectly, and he thought the word he was using would, would really capture what would, would be the result of this operation, at least the first step of the operation. And I didn't understand it. He didn't think about what I was probably going through. First of all, he's going to do an operation on me, so I'm in a, sure. I'm in a tender state. The idea that what you have to say isn't as important as how it lands on the other person is a hard one to get. Because you think, my job is to explain this perfectly. Your job is to explain it so the other person gets it. I think my head's about to explode. My head did explode. <laughs> Wait, hold on, well, Mary. Well, first of all, Go it's ahead. Alan Alda. It is this guy. It is this icon. The guy. The guy. If you were to put, say, a top 10 of actors, just personalities in a list, he's in that list. And way, way near the top. And he is now saying all this obsession with trying to say it exactly the right way. I said it perfectly. Why don't they understand me? That's part of the problem. But what's even worse is he tells this story about being with this dentist, who I'm hoping was very good clinically. But he's about to do some sort of surgery on his mouth, and he says there'll be some tethering. Mm -hmm. Tethering, what what is the deal with scientists, clinicians, educators, accountants, lawyers, People in the healthcare field, what is the deal with the jargon? What is the deal with using language that only you understand? I don't understand as a, quote, regular person. Alan Alda didn't understand. Mary Gamba doesn't understand. What the heck causes so many people? This is the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and Mary Gamba. What causes so many people to speak in a way that they're convinced they've nailed it? And as he said, one of the most fascinating things about communication is the illusion that communication is actually taking place. What causes so many to be so off about this? I think it is 50% due to the fact that they want, and by they I mean scientists or accountants or people who are highly educated, they want to show that they're educated. They want to come off as being smart, as knowledgeable, and they believe by using big terms, big words, and industry speak that it will make them sound more intelligent. And I think the other half is, frankly, they don't know any better. No one ever. So the guy said, sorry for interrupting. Mm -hmm. 
The doctor says tethering. Yeah, he thinks everybody understands. Do you think he thought that Alan Alda, as he's about to go into Alan Alda's mouth and perform, let's say, a significant procedure, yeah. that when he says tethering, the great Alan Alda says, oh, there'll be some tethering, and he knows exactly what it means. You think he thought? I think he actually thought that. I think it becomes or did he think such. It all? I think it becomes shorthand. So, no, I don't think there's a lot of thinking going on. I think it just becomes, it's like anything else. When you speak around a certain group of you people. You and I call it autopilot. We, Go ahead. Autopilot, but there's also short speak. We also talk about the fact that you and I know what each other, for the most part, is going to say or will be saying because we have two decades together. So, whereas other people don't understand or are as quick to understand the short speak that we use. So, as a professional, you need to understand that the person you're communicating with may not understand those jargony words and then communicate to be understood, not to make yourself sound intelligent. Hold on one second. I was having a conversation with our son, Chris, the other day, mm-hmm. trying to explain something to him. I said, Chris, you know, it's really an enigma. It's got me thinking. He said, yeah, dad, I get it. And then I stopped and said, Chris, what do you think enigma means? Mm-hmm. And he sheepishly said, dad, I have no idea. So here's <laughs> But the at qu- least he admitted it. A lot yeah, of people won't. But Mary, I just happen to think to myself, does this 14-year-old, he'll be 15 when this airs, does this kid actually know what enigma means? Now, truthfully, Chris, I'm not trying to make you feel bad here. There was a part of me that wanted him or thought he would know what enigma meant. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking maybe he doesn't. But since our goal, as Alan Alda said, is to communicate so as to be understood, what are we going to do? Every four words, stop and say, Mary, do you know what I mean by enigma? You know, share with me your thoughts. Oh, is that what you think it means? Well, what I meant was this. That would make us go crazy. But don't use larger words than your audience can understand. How do we know what they know and don't? You need to empathize. You need to take into some factors. You need to take into the fact that it's a child, in this case, a 14-year-old child. So using a word like enigma may not resonate with him or her. If you're talking to a larger audience, then you need to really understand, is this an audience of parents? Is it clinicians? Is it children? Is it artists? People here, based on what they grew up with, and if you don't take that into account, what you're saying can fall on deaf ears and be misunderstood or even worse, misinterpreted. Now let's play out the manifestation of this. What actually could happen if you and I, Brian, Brian Berdour in the studio, or this dentist of Alan Alda, or a doctor, a lawyer, anyone, uses language that is not understood, says something that is, quote, not understood by the recipient of that message. You and I often say message sent does not equal message Message received. received. See, I could finish your sentence because we know the short speak. But here's the problem. What about if that other person starts acting on what they think was just communicated? What happens? A lot of bad could happen in the medical field. Mistakes can be life-threatening if that happens. In business, you can lose a deal. You could make a mistake. And again, even if we talk about, we were just saying whether or not to even bring up this topic, but in communicating, if you're directing traffic or if you're deciding when and where to do construction, 
if somebody perceives you to say, oh, why don't you start it at 8 p.m. and somebody didn't hear, oh, I'm going to start at 8 and I started at 8 a.m. No, started at 8. Yeah, started at 8. How do you know whether it's 8 p.m. or 8 p.m.? Well, we don't do construction in the morning, but maybe. What do you mean? Oh, time out. Maybe. Time out. So things like that happen. Can't believe you just brought this up. I know. And I don't want to get too far into it because I did hear that our great friend Kenny Danica will be ready in about three minutes. So, By the way, on another show, we're going to do a program on the fact that it was 7.30 in the morning. I'm on the Great Garden State Parkway. You've ever spent any time on that, Mary? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Two hours every day of my life. I'm going to calculate how many minutes that is when I finally do retire. How am I ever going to get you that time back? So listen, on another show, we're going to do this. I'm on the Garden State Parkway, 7.30 in the morning, going down to do a seminar at one of our great clients at New mm-hmm. Jersey Resources, right? Correct. They're happy to be down in Wall, New yeah, Jersey. Yeah, I left an hour. Well, I'd like to say an hour and a half, but that would be a lie. It was an yeah, hour and That's how long minutes. I left you to get there. It depends on what time you get in the car, so... I misunderstood. Time management there was is miscommunication. another thing. Oh, uh, when I highlight it and bold it and put it in yellow, get in the car no later than. <laughs> and she actually says get in the car no later than 7 a.m. for an 8.30 seminar because if you do not, there, um, will, there will be, be traffic. traffic. Okay, I'm sorry. I missed that part. Okay. But uh, here's the point. There was road construction <laughs> and four lanes or five. But I'm convinced know. that was a mistake because that uh, never happens. It hasn't. I drive by that on, stretch. It that hasn't happened since. four or five lanes since. was turned into two. Right. And all of a sudden, with not a lot of cars on the road in the summer in New Jersey, it turned into a traffic jam that wasn't created by exactly. volume. Exactly. It was created by a decision made by somebody. We were going to get into the whole question in another Leadership Hour program about who, quote, takes responsibility for that? Who was the leader mm-hmm. that takes responsibility? And I said, yeah, good luck in finding that one out. But how could that be a miscommunication? I'm saying it's possible because I have not seen that area being worked on since, except Nobody's for late at wo- night. No was working, Mary. Sorry. Well, maybe they left the cones there by accident, which also could have been a miscommunication if they said, Bob, Bob's getting the cone, and John thinks John's getting the cones. But there was something that day cones I saw on the highway? I saw the cones. They were You're blocking off the one You're about to talk about the, the George Washington I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway. Our great... Who said Bridgegate? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, my goodness. Don't even go there. Our great friend is available and Kenny ready. is? Yes. He is taking time out of his busy schedule. So right, we're going to come we're back gonna take to a the quick owl. break. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Let's take a quick break. We come back. And, Mary, why are you so excited that we have the great Kenny Danico on I the line? I am a huge New Jersey Devils fan. And for any Devils fans out there, there's a lot of exciting stuff coming up that may actually help us this upcoming season. So. Oh, so that means I can't talk about my team, the Rangers. Okay, this is the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and Mary Gamba. You're listening to us on AM 970 from Lower Manhattan in New York City, and also listening to us on our podcast, the great Kenny Danico talking about leadership in sports right after this break. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. Welcome back to the Leadership Hour with Steve Adubato and Mary Gamble, listening to us on AM 970. That is the number one radio station in and around the New York, New Jersey area. And also, you're listening to us on our podcast. One of the great things about the Leadership Hour, Mary Gamba, is that we get to talk to the most fascinating leaders in 
personalities, including in sports. And so your favorite team, your favorite hockey mm. player is with us right now. Just happens to be the New Jersey Devils. And Ken, I forgot to tell you this. I have a picture and I'll send it to you later. My boys were probably four and seven at the time when you were on the train down to Washington. And you took wow. time to get a picture with them. And I will send that to you later. So thank you for that. Because now they're 14 and 17 and they still remember it. <laughs> and it's hanging in my 17-year-old's room. I'd love to see it and uh, appreciate the support. And that was such a nice introduction. I appreciate being on with you guys. Well, we're on with the great Kenny Danico, who is a former defenseman for the New Jersey Devils, played from 1983 to 2003. He is, in fact, Mr. Devil. Kenny, am I correct that your jersey number three is hanging in the rafters at the Prudential Center? You are correct. One of five. I was the second jersey to go up. It was just a tremendous honor. About a month after our great leader, Scott Stevens, speaking of leadership, he was our captain for many years and those three championship teams as well. So learned a lot from him, had a great leadership group. They always have it in sports. You have to have it anywhere, obviously, but as far as to win championships, because it's not easy to win. And the more leaders you have, the better. <laughs> That's right. And by the way, I was mistaken. It's not two Stanley Cups. It's it's three. three. And it's going to be four this upcoming season. How dare you shortchange me, Steve? <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm sorry, my friend. Um, by the way, let's set this up. Kenny is also um, he's an analyst. He's an in-game analyst for the New Jersey Devils broadcast on the great MSG. Alongside your colleague, Steve Cangelosi, right? Correct. Correct. And Bryce Salvador, a former Devils captain as well, is between the benches for in-game analysis when we throw it down to him. So we've got a nice nice group, a couple of former Devils, and Steve Cangelosi does a wonderful job at the play-by-play. And we're looking forward to a much better season this year, for sure. It wasn't great last year. You know, as we listen to Kenny, by the way, you listen to Kenny Danico, Steve Autobato, Mary Gamba. This is the Leadership Hour on AM 970. Kenny, and by the way, Kenny and I recently, I want to disclose this, together with our friends and colleagues at Delta Dental, they do an annual golf tournament and outing that promotes and raises money for Special Olympics of New Jersey. Kenny was the honored guest there, and he and I worked that event, and he helped raise a ton of money. I just want to thank you for that, Kenny. Oh, that's a great event, and certainly it's nice to give back, certainly in this state of New Jersey that's been so good to me. And I've been here 36 years now. can't believe it with the Devils organization. I feel very fortunate for a kid that was 18 years old when he was drafted, didn't know where New Jersey was. I had to ask my mother. (laughs) <laughs> and now I'm a transplanted Jersey and I love it here. And, you know, it's just nice to, to help out in any little way you can throughout the state, certainly for charities. And that was a real good one for sure. So here's the thing. As you listen to Kenny, you notice, and this is really a leadership question, Ken. You notice Kenny mentioned his colleagues. He went to Scott Stevens right away and talked about the great Scott Stevens, his Jersey be retired. I talked about his work on MSG. He talks about his colleagues right away. Here's the thing, Ken. How much of leadership, the kind of leader that you are, is based on giving credit and recognizing your teammates as opposed to, hey, I'm the one who did this because I'm the best and I'm the leader. (laughs) Go ahead, Kenny Danico, tell us. Well, I think it's one of the biggest qualities of leadership, certainly, is humility. You know how good you are. You know how much you contribute. But I, I really believe, Steve, to be a good leader, you need a collectively a team, a group. It doesn't matter in sports, business, whatever it may be. But I reflect after my career. I mean, when you're in it, you don't realize kind of the dynamic you have on a team. And I mentioned that it's so tough to win. So many teams are good. Everybody's got talent. Yes, you need talent. But you need a group of guys that 
for me, more so when things aren't going well, that shows me good leadership. I mean, we can get all the accolades when things are going well individually for you or as a team and pats on the back, and we all like that every once in a while. And the media and newspapers tend to gravitate to guys that certainly are carrying their weight or, or playing extremely well. But for me, I learned later in my career, especially with young guys, I wouldn't go to the guy that had three goals that game. I'd go to the guy that maybe – Struggled a little bit. You could see him down in his stall in the locker room that, uh, you know, he was disappointed in his performance or whatever it may be. And and those are the guys you want to pick up and lift because you're going to need them in a spot. And that was a big part of my understanding of leadership, certainly later in my career. is not always the guys that are going good, and sometimes we have a tendency to do that. It's when it's not going good. And I know for me, whether it was on or off the ice, personally – when things weren't going well, that's when I needed a pickup. That's when I needed somebody to put his arm around me and kind of rejuvenate me, kind of uh, give me a little life, give me some support when things aren't going so well. And I, I always say that that is a big part of leadership. We had it with Scott Stevens and Scott Niedemar and Randy McKay's. I can go on down the list when we were winning Stanley Cup champions, Marty Broders. They were those type of personalities, those type of people. And, and I think that really carried us a long way because that guy that maybe had a tough game or was out of the lineup in a big playoff spot got back in a couple games later, and we knew how important he was, and it helped to make sure, saying it's one game, man, to shake it off. And that, to me, was a big part of leadership, and I certainly appreciated it when players did that to me, and especially later in my career when your role diminishes a little bit. You know, everybody wants to feel part of it, but you understand that Mother Nature takes its toll every once in a while, and that was later in my career when I was in that lineup. But, you know, to have players come up to you or the Scott Stevens come up to you and say, we're going to need you in a big spot, so we can't lose you. (laughs) But one of the greatest leaders in sports and hockey was my arch rival on the Rangers, but I grew up with him, was Mark Messier. And I learned so much from him. He really tutored me as a kid. He was four or five years older than me. I grew up with him in Edmonton, Alberta, knew him since 10 years old. Great leaders have that presence, and they have that personality that people gravitate to you. But, you know, we always say lead by example and the work ethic and all that, and that's what Scott Stevens did. Mark Messier had a combination of both, knowing when to stand up at the right time and take charge and take a hold of his group and make sure they're focused and everything else. And I saw it with Mark Messier, and it really helped me along the way how to be part of a leadership group and be a leader, just watching him operate every day, whether it was us going on vacation, whether it was him teaching me in a hockey school, just seeing how he commanded a room or how he lifted the spirits of people around him. And, you know, to me, he was one of the greatest leaders in sports, and it certainly helped me along the way. And then again, like I said, mentioned some of my teammates that were terrific at it as well, but that's all part of it. And certainly a big part of life when you can be a leader. You're listening to uh, Kenny Danico, the great Kenny Danico from the Devils. He represents that team as an ambassador. He's also on MSG doing Devils analysis for the games. I'm here with Mary Gamba, Steve Adubato. This is the Leadership Hour. Kenny, let me try this. Whether it's sports or anything else, you talked about helping someone, picking them up when they're down, giving them the word of encouragement. Mary and I have had this conversation a long time. Teammates, we have a team of 10 people in our production company. You said, and by the way, Kenny in the media, he, he's on a team right now of all kinds of people in front of the camera and behind. Kenny, you and I have known each other a long time. I'm not shy about making it clear when I'm not happy about something, when I think someone is underperforming, and I'm very specific and I'm direct, and there are times, I'm sure, too abrupt 
and turn people off in the process. So here's the question. I'll say to Mary, why am I the one doing it all the time? Why can't team members, <laughs> Mary, why can't you, why can't Laura, some of our other great team member, why can't you tell so-and-so that what they're doing isn't right? Don't tell me, tell them. And Mary's response is often, hey, wait a minute. We We're, do it every day. Yeah, you do it every day, but very often- But we often don't do it in the same way. I agree, but here's the larger question. Do you think it's harder, Kenny Danico, for peers on a team, regardless of the sport or broadcasting or whatever it is, as leaders, to actually say to another colleague, a peer, hey, listen, when you did X, Y, Z, it wasn't your best, and I want to be really candid with you. Or is that the job of, quote, the leader leader to do that? Help me, Kenny. Well, it's a great question. I probably have numerous answers for it, but I will say, Steve, I think leaders take risks for sure. It's how you present it. I believe it's not looking down or being derogatory toward a teammate or somebody that needs to pick their game up. We all know the coach is your leader in sports, and certainly you want a guy that he's got to be a communicator. He has to know who needs a kick in the butt. Certain personalities need a little more of a kick in the butt when things are going bad or, or he's kind of taking shortcuts. And then along the way, and it's no different, like I said, sports, I always use the same analogies for companies or whatever it may be or business or you guys as a team and what you guys do on the radio and together on TV is you just have to know who needs a hug when things are going down. Some guys that are hard on themselves already that you have to understand that as a coach, you almost have to be a psychologist nowadays more. So in my day, it was, they treated everybody the same. It was one way. And some guys would fold under the pressure if they got yelled at or if they got scolded because things weren't going well. Cause we know when they're not going well, but I think it's how you present it and understand. So, hold on, Kenny. Kenny, sorry for interrupting. Are you saying being a leader today in sports, coach, leader, is actually a somewhat different job than it was 15, 20, 25 years ago? No question. No question wow. in my mind. And I talk about it with Coach Hines from the Devils, so I have a ton of respect for it. That's John Hines. And, and we always say it that kids are a little more sensitive these days, I believe. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Whether <laughs> Too many trophies. They all, they all got trophies, Ken. <laughs> We're all sensitive. We all have a heart. We all have a personality that uh, we want things to go well. Yeah, things go tough every once in a while. But I just believe you've got to handle a little differently and understand the personalities a little better. I know in the 80s, uh, I had a coach that was so hard on me, I thought he hated me, and that was Tom McBee. And he had me in the, with the Devils. He had me on the farm team in the minors, and he was all over me, and, and, and I thought he was picking on me, being hard on me. Well, 30 years, fast forward, he was <laughs> at my retirement night in 2006, and, you know, he was the first guy there. He says, Kenny, you know why I was hard on you, right? Because I believed in you. I knew you had potential to do something great, to be part of something great and be a real good National Hockey League player. And I got it afterwards. But at the time, did you reject it? At the time. Yeah. I keep believing that even some people on our team or any team, if they're pissed at you at the time, that's okay as long as they learn long-term what your motives were. Is that good enough? I think as you mature, you certainly should understand that. Some people take it too personal right uh, off the bat, fortunately, me as a young kid, I was intense. I was rambunctious. I'd bark back. I'd go home, be all angry and depressed, whatever you want to call it along the way. As I got older throughout my career, and certainly after I retired, I really understood a lot more. Lou Lamorello, my great general manager, Hall of Fame general manager for 25 years, was very similar on me. He was tough on me, but he gave me a hug when I needed it. He, wow. he was that type of guy on off the ice where everybody thought he was a disciplinarian. You hear about Lou being a real tough guy. 
He was tough and very intimidating, but he could sense when there was a time every once in a while, even if I screwed up per se on the ice or off the ice, he knew every once in a while he wouldn't scold me. He would take me in and give me some support, some encouragement. So he knew that was kind of being a psychologist, understanding that I can't beat him up anymore right now. I got to give him a little love along the way. So I think there's a balance and good leaders know that balance along the way. And that's something I tried to relay when I became a leader of the Devils and and one of those guys that had to lead by example. And I'll give you a perfect example from 2003 when I was sitting out some games in the playoffs. I was angry. I wanted to be in. I felt I could contribute. But I supported the young guy that was in there for me saying, go get him. Don't worry about me because they were intimidated. And then when I got back in, we supported each other. I'll never forget it. It was all Trevor Dosky, a young defenseman. He was kind of feeling bad he was going in for me. I'm going, oh, this is not personal, man. You're a hell of a player. Go get him. Do your best, man. If I get back in, it's okay, too. We're going to need both of us. That's Mary. Wow. That's powerful. Kenny is saying, I want to be out there. I'm a leader. I'm a good player. But for the team, it's better for, oh, my God. Talk about being selfless. 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 Hey, Kenny. It took a lot of years to learn that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kenny, I'm still working on that, buddy. And I'm older than you. Hey, listen, this is Steve Adubato, Mary Gamba. This has been the great Kenny Danico. Mary, how much of a thrill for you as a lifelong Devils fan with your husband, Bill, your two sons? Yeah. How much fun has this been for you oh, talking to Kenny? Oh, this has been fantastic. I wish we had an hour to continue the conversation, Ken. I mean, just the <laughs> knowledge and just your history and the lessons that you're sharing are valuable to all listeners of all ages. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, uh, Kenny Danico. Real pleasure to be on with you guys and keep up the great work. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. How great is Kenny Danico? Oh, my gosh. He's really great. Listen, so we are out of time. This has been the Leadership Hour. This is Steve. That's Mary. That was Kenny Danico. And I can't thank you enough for listening. Check you out next time. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by... New Jersey Resources. Hi, I'm Chris Giamo, and at TD Bank, we believe all citizens need to be informed about the important financial issues that affect their daily lives. That's why we're proud to support programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by TD Bank. New Jersey Sharing Network, dedicated to saving lives through organ and tissue donation. Community Food Bank of New Jersey. NJ Best, New Jersey's 529 College Savings Plan. Turn a dream into a degree. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. Johnson & Johnson. And by Choose New Jersey. Our mission is attracting companies to the Garden State. Promotional support provided by NJ Advance Media. And by R-O-I-N-J, informing and connecting businesses in New Jersey. Welcome to State Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We are coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJ TV studio in beautiful Brick City, Newark, New Jersey. By popular demand, we have them back. Joe Gingoli is CEO of Joseph Gingoli and Son, and also Jack Morris, President and CEO of Edgewood Properties. Gentlemen, you have, you're celebrating as we do this program, the one-year anniversary of Hard Rock 
in Atlantic City. It's a casino. It's more than a casino, right? The Hard Rock Atlantic City. Entertainment, restaurants. Got the whole thing going there. It's been about a year, Jack. So we had you guys here when it was happening. That's right. A lot of people from Atlantic City being employed. Yes. Of the 4,000 employees you have, you said 1,300 from AC? 1,300 from AC. How does that happen? Tell folks. It, it, it doesn't happen easy. Um, we worked hard, uh, worked with uh, the uh, local um, people of local Atlantic Local union, City. is that Local 54? Local 54. Uh, Joe worked really hard with everybody to make this happen, and we're real proud of uh, what we said we we're going to deliver. We delivered that, and uh, we're doing great things in Atlantic City. So when you came here last year, Jack, you talked about the fact that you wanted to hire people from Atlantic City, but it, it, it wasn't easy. What makes it challenging? You know, it was, it was actually not that hard. Uh, we focused on Atlantic City residents, uh, our HR department, and um, of course our partners and the operator Hard Rock uh, was on board with that. Uh, we opened up with 20% of our employees as Atlantic City residents, and what happened as we constricted for the winter months, it, that number went up, went up to 25%, mm. which said that when our managers could pick who to keep, they kept Atlantic City residents, which is what we knew. There was a viable, trainable workforce there. We partnered ourselves and all the other casinos with Local 54 and with the support of Rob Angelo and the Department, the Department of, of Labor. Labor. Right, Secretary we, of Labor. Yep, yeah, we started the first workforce development program in the history of Atlantic City, and it's up and running. It's funded by uh, half with the Department of Labor and the industry kicking in the other half. Public-private partnership. Yes, sir. So, Jack, let me see. We've known each other a long time. We've, we've talked about a whole range of things offline as well. What I'm curious about is, did, did, did you see, both of you have been very successful in developing, building, making things happen. When you went into AC, lots of questions, lots of challenges. Still a whole range of issues. We're going to be doing a special on Atlantic City in the next couple of months. Did you have a lot of doubts about the potential for success? No, I had Why no not? doubts. Uh, because we knew that Atlantic City um, needed and wanted to put people to work. And Atlantic City residents uh, were, were, were great people who just needed an opportunity. And uh, New Jersey is a great state, one of the most densely populated states in the country. Uh, we're surrounded by uh, Pennsylvania and New York, mm. and it just needed a, a kick in the you-know-what. And, yeah. and that's, I think, what we showed that we could do it. The other, sorry for interrupting. The other thing that's really fascinating to me is that we've done a, a lot of work on prisoner reentry, reentering to society, ex-offenders. Because people are like, listen, they broke the law. It's not my business. Whatever happened, keep them in jail. No, they get out. You two guys, with others, have been working on an initiative to hire ex-offenders. Make the case. Yes. Um, we, uh, we partnered with uh, uh, Atlantic County Court System, and they have Drug Court, which is a uh, around the country, very successful program. We asked if uh, they could change the name to Recovery Court, and those graduates uh, coming through our workforce development program are being hired by us and other casinos, and we've had, a, uh, had good results. What have you found? It's saying good results is one thing, Joe, but what have you found? Because there are a whole bunch of people watching right now and say, really? I don't think I'd do that. Make the case that it's been a good thing. Well, the case is giving people opportunity who want to change their life and have had made past mistakes and giving them good jobs, union jobs with benefits, 
uh, has had a very positive result for us as a casino and for the city. What do you think it's meant for the city, Jack? Well, I can tell you that people that come to Hard Rock um, always comment on how great uh, the service, the staff, how people were polite, nice to them. And no matter what happens, uh, they had, you know, experience, they had a wait in line, you know, an elevator broke, something happened. The staff has been incredible, and they would come back time and time again. Uh, and, and I think that that shows for uh, what we've done and, 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 and what the program is, is doing, for, not only for Atlantic City, mm. for, but just the people come up to me that work there, employees come up to me, and are so thankful to have a job and, and have what we built. How rewarding. Proud of it. Very, very. How rewarding. Incredible. We walk around the casino sometimes, Jack, myself, my brother Michael, Jim Allen, our, our partner yep. at the Hard Rock. From the Hard Rock. And talk to the different employees, and they come up and, and thank us, tell us about their families, and they do the same thing with our guests. And, you know, that has uh, brought, brought our guests back. Yeah. yeah. Real quick before I let you go, um, a sense of community and making a difference. Charitable works for a long time, supporting public broadcasting, our production operation, as well as uh, the chair of a major health care system. Thank you. In the state of New Jersey, RWJ Barnabas Health. Where does that come from? Because you're business people, you're bottom line gentlemen who want to make sure you make a profit, but you've, I've always noticed. And it's not only about making a profit, it's about doing the right thing. And that's what both of us have been about. And that's what really gave us the opportunity to say, let's look at something that somebody else wouldn't look at, that the Wall Street guys wouldn't look at. Why? Because the bottom line may not look just, right to them? It just didn't look right to them. You know, it didn't, it didn't fit in their box. But we saw an opportunity, and we knew that people needed a second chance. And, uh, and I think we proved it. Look at the double-digit uh, increases in Atlantic City revenues. And it's not just casinos. You're starting to see businesses uh, that are now coming to Atlantic City, and that's going to continue. By the way, let's make it clear. The national unemployment rate is around 3.6. The unemployment rate in Atlantic City area is registered at 6%. I mean, it's not the same as the rest of the country. Where's your sense of making a difference come from? You know, um, grew up in the business. I had opportunity in my life and thought, you know, if others had the same opportunity, what would the outcome be? Would it be different? And um, from a business standpoint, social responsibility is a currency. And um, Quite frankly, uh, our uh, Lieutenant Governor, Sheila Oliver, has really acknowledged that that's what we're doing in Atlantic City and given us a tremendous amount of support for it. The state needs to be involved in this. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't do it alone? No. Someone says, let the private sector do it alone. You say? I think the private sector leads. They have to lead. It's their industry. And then we need support from uh, the body politic. Absolutely. And that partnership makes for the success. Joe and Jack, we appreciate you joining us. Um, let's make sure we continue to monitor the progress, not Thank just you. of your casino, but truthfully of Atlantic City overall. Atlantic City. Because people often forget, yeah, it's Atlantic City is down there. They have trouble. They're, maybe they're coming back, maybe not. It's everyone in the state who is affected by what's going on in AC. And we appreciate what you're doing. And Thank more you. importantly, we'll continue to Thanks for giving us that monitor the progress. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us. You got it. This is State of Affairs. Stay right there. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're at NJTV Studios in Newark, and we'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato.
State of Affairs is pleased to welcome Tim Sullivan, CEO, New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Good to see you, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. For those who may not have read or don't know what the EDA is, describe it. Well, the Economic Development Authority is uh, one of the state's uh, principal uh, uh, organizations that's driving economic growth and innovation all throughout the state. We you, do that. You drive it? We try to. G give us an example of what it means to drive. So we partner with the private sector, we partner with corporations, we partner with institutions of higher ed uh, education to really focus on the, 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 uh, the state's economic competitiveness to help uh, attract and retain businesses, to help attract and retain talent, and to build vibrant communities. Challenging? No doubt, but uh, that's what makes it fun. You know, let, let's do this. Uh, I, I said this before. We had uh, Jose Lozano from Choose New Jersey. Choose New Jersey and the EDA are collaborators, partners with us in a series we're doing with a whole range of others, academic institutions like NJIT and others, on a series called The Future of Innovation. You'll see a graphic up there. So here's what I'm curious about. Governor Murphy talks about an innovation economy, mm -hmm. right? What's the difference between promoting innovation and an innovation economy? Well, I think they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, an innovation economy, you know, New Jersey was Silicon Valley before there was a Silicon Valley. The, the discoveries that, that were hatched in academic and corporate laboratories uh, here in New Jersey really fueled... Starting with Edison? Starting with Edison and, and you know, even further back into the, into the pharmaceutical industry and, in you know, the mid-19th century in, in places like New Brunswick uh, with companies like Johnson & Johnson uh, that, that, that took root here. That, you know, th those discoveries that made us the medicine chest of the world that, that, that fueled uh, some of the most important innovations that drove the American economy, the global sure. economy... Um, are responsible for so many jobs that were created over the last, you know, 100 plus years. And that's really what the innovation economy is all about. How do you translate and commercialize uh, the kinds of uh, innovative uh, research and development activities that either happen at, at institutions of higher education with the faculty or students, or in corporate uh, labs that are, you know, working on the next uh, big thing for, for, any, for a given company? You know, it's interesting. I've said this many times. I'll say it again. We're looking forward to uh, securing an interview with Governor Murphy. We're going to talk to him about a whole range of issues. One of them, in fact, will be what this innovation economy is all about, what it means to you, and how he's going to try to get this implemented. But what I'm curious about is if you were to define the in innovation economy, are there, are there multiple areas of this? I'm curious. I heard there were five. I don't want to get into the weeds here. And by the way, if you want to look at the detailed um, report on the innovation economy, can they get it at your website? Absolutely, right on the front page. Jackie Heyer, our executive producer, could you put up the website so people can check it out? It, give me the areas. Is it biotech? So innovation is both a, is really a discipline that cuts across lots of different industries. So certainly biotech, technology, digital media, film and television. So, hold uh, on, you separate digital media from film and television? Uh, to, film a certain, television? Uh, to a certain extent, yeah. You have companies okay. that are you know producing uh, you know apps and music sharing and, and uh, streaming services and video companies that are you know principally online versus uh, coming across your television um, or, or viewed in a theater. And so um, yeah, there's lots of different parts. That advanced manufacturing, technology, and innovation is fueling so much of what happens in the value-added parts of the manufacturing economy. Renewable energy, that's all about innovation. Uh, how, do you, how do you turn wind into power that comes out of people's uh, comes That's out of people's the innovation socket. economy? It infuses all those things, absolutely. It's the lifeblood of any, of any growing economy in the 21st century is what? innovation. Dis, you know, research, and dis, research and development, discovery, and commercialization. But is the, okay, let's be clear on this. And there's, listen, again, you don't need me to tell you that the EDA is in the news for a whole range of reasons, but one of them is this. And there's lawsuits going back and forth and not what we are talking about. We're talking about public policy. You can follow that stuff in other media platforms, including NJTV News, which is doing a great job covering it. But what I'm also curious about, in the context of that debate going on between the governor, the Senate president, others involved in this, is, is the EDA a government agency, or is it outside of government? What is it? 
Yeah, so the, the technical character, uh, we're an independent authority, but we're in but not of the Department of Treasury. Hold on. In but not of, in define not that. That's uh, a legal term that actually has, you know, been sort of litigated and discussed quite a bit. Um, it means we're basically part of, but not, not an immediate um, uh, subsidiary of the Treasury Department, but we're part of that, the part of the family. You don't report, do you report to the governor or report to your board? I report to the board, but the, the governor has appointment authority over uh, the majority of the board seats, and so there's a very close relationship there. So here's, here's the larger question I'm fascinated by. From a public policy point of view, help people understand, Tim, mm -hmm. the whole question of quote-unquote tax incentives. Sure. It does, by the way, tax incentives and tax, tax credits, exactly the same thing? More, more or less, yep. Okay, so the Camden issue, again, check it out. But there are a whole range of other communities mm -hmm. across this state where there are tax credits, tax incentives, mm -hmm. Jersey City, Newark, New Brunswick, wherever. What is, in your view, from a policy point of view, sure. the appropriate role of tax incentives, tax credits, in fueling the economy in a community as opposed to saying, let the private sector do it on their own, and if the EDA isn't involved and there's no tax credits, I guess it's not going to happen. So I think, you know, Governor Murphy's been clear on this. Incentives have to be and tax credits have to be a tool in the toolkit to advance an economic development strategy. But they have to be a tool in service of a strategy. You've got to be working towards a goal. And that goal for us is recapturing our leadership position in the innovation economy, having more of the companies that are going to fuel the 21st and 22nd century economy be born here, grow here, and thrive here. And so tax incentives have to be one tool in the toolkit, but they can't be the only tool Name in the toolkit. Name some of the other tools we're talking about. So we have, you know, we have to have a strategy that, um, that focuses on, uh, on a talent strategy, and that, that centers more, uh, more than anything else on, on two things, higher education. How do we attract? Why higher ed? Because that is the, talent is the most precious commodity in the 21st century economy. And so having students that are educated here and stay here and either build businesses or build their lives or build their, you know, go to work Before at New Jersey companies. Before you move off brain drain a problem? I think we'd certainly like to keep more of the homegrown talent that goes through our, you know, world-class uh, public many, education system. We'd certainly like to keep more of them, absolutely. Is that part of the innovation economy? Absolutely. Talent is the fundamental driver of the, of the innovation economy. Companies are chasing talent, and talent wants to be in places that are walkable, bikeable, mixed use, mixed income, uh, that have a dynamism and a 24-7, or at least something close to 24-7 um, kind of vibe. Uh, that means restaurants, it means bars, it means uh, parks, it means all those things that go into a quality of life um, in urban centers and, and downtowns that are walkable near transit. All those things are part of the mix of how mm -hmm. do you have a successful innovation economy. Yeah, stay, stay on the toolkit. Toolkit transportation. Toolkit is education. Mm -hmm. Toolkit is, let me ask you this. With the Economic Development Authority, how much do you focus on the fact that there are some businesses who complain about the tax rate and how, what they pay in the state, and they say, it's too expensive, I'm out of here. Is tax policy a toolkit? I don't just mean tax mm -hmm. incentives and tax sure. credits, but overall tax policy. Absolutely, it's, it's in the mix. The two things that the governor and, I, governor and I hear most consistently from companies, both big and small, when we're around the state or around the world talking about New Jersey as a place to build a business, the two things we hear about first and foremost, talent and infrastructure. Can they find the people that they need to grow the business in the way that they want to do? And can those people get to and from work with some predictability and affordability? And can their goods and services get back out to the marketplace uh, with, with some predictability? Those are the top two, almost without exception. Got it. Tax policy plays a role. Tax incentives play a role. But there has to be a fundamental strategic rationale for a company to be here. By itself, that's not getting done. So when the Amazon deal doesn't take place in New York, so I say, well, you know, they, 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 um, again, a Pandora's box I'm opening. But that itself was, is, 
isn't purely a question of tax incentives. There's a whole bunch of other issues involved, correct? Well, sure. I, you know, I, I can't speak for Amazon, but you know, my, they, they picked Long Island City uh, for a period of time and Northern Virginia because of a lot of reasons. The proximity to a talented workforce has to be at the top of that list. Yeah. Before I let you go, the New Jersey uh, Innovation Evergreen Fund, uh, 20 seconds on it. New Jersey fell from 5th to 15th in venture capital from 2007 to 17. Venture capital is the lifeblood of the innovation economy. The governor's got an innovative proposal to partner with big companies, small companies, and venture capital investors to grow more homegrown New Jersey success stories. This is Tim Sullivan, CEO, Economic Development Authority in the state of New Jersey. Um, this is part of our ongoing series on innovation. I'll repeat again that the EDA is one of our collaborators and our partners, and frankly, one of the funders, uh, along with a whole range of other academic institutions and others, with that initiative. I want to disclose that fully. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much Let's for having me. Let's keep the conversation going. State of Affairs, coming to you from NJTV's Agnes Vera Studio. We'll be right back right after this. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. This is Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. We were talking about, let's disclose, previously we were both Eagleton and fellows. Fellows, right, in the graduate program at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Yes, I barely got in and barely got out. So uh, let's do this, Debbie. Let's talk about women in politics. Um, women make up what percent of the population in New Jersey? About 51 percent in, in New Jersey and nationally. And in the state legislature in New Jersey, of the 120 members of that august body, there are how many women? About 31 percent of the legislature is female. 31? 31 percent. Because? Oh, so many reasons, Steve. Um, New Jersey has been a tough place for women to break in. Uh, I will tell you that at 31 percent, we're doing better than we have in a very long time. Uh, we rank 19th in the nation. Uh, we used to be, just a year ago, 13th in the nation, but when the elections happened in 2018 and we saw so many women getting elected across the country, even though New Jersey's numbers stayed the same, we dropped in our rank. Um, but we are doing better. It used to be 15 years ago, we were in the bottom 10 mm. with Alabama and Mississippi. Um, and a lot of work has been done to try to increase the number of women in office in New Jersey. But there remain a lot of hurdles. And I think in large part, the greatest one is the party structure. Let's talk about this. Is it fair to say that most of the party leaders, the party structure, the party power brokers, those who you don't read about, well, put it this way, you don't see them on this show a lot, but they're the folks who make a lot of decisions about who gets to run. They're just middle-aged and older white men. Older white men. And if you look around the state on both sides of the aisle, um, I think it's only about nine women who are currently state party, uh, who are currently county party chairs. Right. Uh, the rest of them are all men. And those folks make a lot of decisions about who gets to run and, frankly, who doesn't get to run. Not always looking for women. Not always looking for women. And it's not necessarily a transparent process in New Jersey. Um, a lot of the times these decisions are made behind closed doors. And women are not in the room. We run a nonpartisan campaign training program called Ready to Run in New Jersey. We get close to 200 women every year who sign up, and they are ready to run. And they may think that they're in line, but sometimes the line moves, and uh, they don't know quite how to get there. Is the quote-unquote old boys network as alive and well, and not so well for a lot of reasons, as it was 15, 20 years ago? I think it's better 
things have improved, but there is still... I think that what's improved is I think some of the men out there who run the show have realized that it's a good thing for them it's to run politics. women. It's smart politics to run women. But I think the men are still largely the folks making those decisions. Women aren't in the inside, um, in those back rooms when a lot of these decisions are made in most of the counties. Me Too made a difference? The Me Too movement made any difference? Has, has it made, in your view, any difference in men who were involved in these decisions being aware enough smart enough, practical enough, do the right thing, and put women out there. We'd like to think so. We'd like to think that this is having an impact here in New Jersey. I think it definitely has had an impact nationally. It has. I think we saw it in 2018 with record numbers of women running for office, state legislatures, Congress, and record numbers of women winning. Um, largely, almost exclusively on the Democratic side, Republican yep. women still have a long way to go. But here in New Jersey, I think it's been slower. We did, we did manage to go from one woman member of Congress in, from New Jersey to two. By the way, Mikey Sherrill, excuse me for interrupting, sat right there, Congresswoman Sherrill. Check out that interview you did with her. And when she talked about how many women came in in this class. Yeah. In this it was, class in Congress. She said it's very refreshing. 36 women. It's the largest freshman class that we've seen of women. Uh, again, almost exclusively on the Democratic side of all of those newly elected women. One, one newly elected Republican woman last What's time. up with the Republicans? It's a complicated situation. So the Republican Party in general does not put the kind of resources into women's candidacies that the Democratic side does. Not just with the party itself, but outside organizations. There is nothing comparable to an EMILY's List pack for Democratic pro-choice women on the Republican Emily's List, side. EMILY's List, a great way to raise money for women. Fantastic way to raise money. <clears throat> But also on the Republican sorry, side, ahead. on the Republican side, there is a real reluctance to identify with the concept of identity politics. Huh? Well, their idea is on the Republican side is that the best candidate will rise to the top, whoever that is, and you don't necessarily need women or people of color to represent the interests of women. Well, how about and people representing the population? Yep, they'll say that the best candidates will come to the fore, and that's how to do it. Um, Paul Ryan said when he was speaker that the reason there is the kind of partisan divide and gridlock in Washington, D.C. was because of identity politics. The Democratic Party embraces identity politics, and that helps when it comes to recruiting women candidates. Let me ask you, someone listening, <clears throat> excuse me right now, saying, oh, uh, Debbie Walsh and Rutgers from the uh, American Women, excuse me, the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers, She's, she's speaking, and she's clearly favoring the Democrats and is being critical of the Republicans. You say facts are facts? I say facts are facts, but I also say if we're ever going to get to political parity in this country for women, both parties have to do the work. And we need the Republican Party to do more. We need more Republican women in office. We need more women on both sides of the aisle. We're at about... We're still less than a quarter women in Congress, but the Democrats are doing much better. The Republicans need to do better. And the Democratic women in Congress tell us they want to see more Republican women in office, and the Republican women in Congress tell us Two the same left. thing. Is there a women's caucus? Is it real? There is a bipartisan caucus in Washington for women's issues that is not nearly as strong as it used to be. Uh, it is much harder these days for that kind of work across the aisle to exist. This is Debbie Walsh from the, she's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University, my alma mater. They try to ignore that, but they can't. Uh, thank we you. We claim Debbie. you, we claim you. Yeah, once in a while, thank you. This is State of Affairs, I'm Steve Adubato.
Let's continue the conversation. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Adubato. See you next time. Thank you very much. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 30 years of broadcast excellence. Funding for this edition of State of Affairs with Steve Adubato has been provided by TD Bank, New Jersey Sharing Network, Community Food Bank of New Jersey, NJ Best, New Jersey's 529 College Savings Plan, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Johnson & Johnson, and by Choose New Jersey, promotional support provided by NJ Advance Media, and by ROINJ. What is your child's dream for the future? Doctor? Teacher? Architect? Whatever they aspire to be, a college education may realize those dreams. And NJ Best can help. It's the college savings plan specifically designed for New Jersey families. Start saving today with as little as $25, because now is the time to invest in their future. To learn about NJ Best 529 College Savings Plan, its investment objectives, risks, and costs, read the Investor Handbook available at njbest.com.